This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be again this Sunday. If you brought your own Bible, you'll find Acts 14 uh, wherever it is, on whatever page number your Bible has. If you don't have your own Bible, then there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back nearby. And in that hardback uh, black Bible, Acts 14 is on page 868, 868. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts, and we come uh, now to a passage that uh, really serves uh, sort of as a as an, an end uh, to a buildup that's been happening throughout the, the last couple of times we've been in the book of Acts. Uh, really since the beginning of chapter 13, the, it was the initial uh, sending off of these missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, from the church there in Antioch in Syria to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to places uh, far away. Uh, they began their missionary journey back there, as I said, in Acts chapter 13. And as they came to town after town, we, we've been told about the, the previous two towns, uh, Antioch of Pisidia and then also Iconium. Those have been the most immediately previous towns. And in these two previous towns, Paul and Barnabas have not gotten such a, a great um, send-off from those previous towns. There, there was an initial good response. There were converts uh, to Christianity upon their arrival. When they proclaimed the gospel, there were those who responded with repentance and with faith. But uh, they, Paul and Barnabas eventually uh, didn't do so well among those who were uh, in the leadership, particularly among the, the unbelieving Jewish leadership in these two previous towns. As you might recall, uh, Paul and Barnabas were, were kicked out of Antioch. And then in Iconium, uh, the next town that they went to along the way, uh, they learned of a plan to kill them. And so they escaped just before this plan unfolded. Well, we're, we're coming to the end of, of that series of events here, and, and we'll see what has happened when those unbelieving uh, Jews from Antioch and also from Iconium finally caught up with Paul and Barnabas. But there's much more here than just the mere conclusion of this, these, uh, these few acts of this unfolding play here, this unfolding storyline that is happening in the page, on the pages of real human history. What I'd like for us to think about this morning, what I think is, is going to help us to apply what we are reading and, and thinking about uh, in, on the pages of Scripture to our own lives, is to think about the way this impacts what we understand conversion to be. When, when you call a, a fellow uh, person, you know, friend, family member, co-worker, when you call someone into Christianity, what are you calling them into? What exactly are you inviting them to do or to take on? What is conversion? What are they signing up for? When my youngest son Malachi becomes old enough to understand the gospel with with greater depth, how will I make clear to him what it will mean for him to repent, to turn from sin and to believe, to trust in Jesus? How will I explain that more than just saying those words? How will that be clear to him what he is to do? When your friend says that she believes in Jesus, 
but she doesn't feel really uh, that she has to uh, know what Jesus said about in particular you know, uh, events of life or things she ought to do or ought not do. That she, she doesn't really think she has to follow all those things the Bible instructs because after all, you know, that, that's not really something we, we have to do. We just believe in Jesus. What, what is your response to that sort of person? How do you, how do you continue the conversation with them? Uh, I might try to dial it in even further to say when we're talking with our friends and family members who don't really belong to any church, there's no meaningful way that they appear to be Christian in any, in any significant sense or to have any relationship with the Christians who've gone before us, but who claim to believe in Jesus or be Christians. Do you think of them more like people who are good folks who are just kind of on the wrong track? Or do you think of them as those who are, who are idolaters who are in real danger of suffering God's wrath. Which of those more, you know, is the picture you have in mind? Well, I think Acts chapter 14 has a great deal to say to us as we think about questions like this and think about the way that we engage with others, how we even cling to and understand what it is to live as a Christian in this world. With that bit of an introduction, let's turn our attention now to Acts chapter 14. If you would, I'd like to ask you to stand with me as I read the primary passage, Acts chapter 14. I'll begin in verse 8 and read through verse 20. Standing is just one of the ways that we demonstrate respect for God's word during this primary reading. Let me read for you. Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having, been, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, today, unlike next Sunday, as I said, uh, today is an expositional message seeking to draw out from Acts 14, verses 8 to 20, what God's word is saying, uh, what it appears to me to be sort of a summary of the main idea that we might gain from this 
is that though Christians and Christianity may often appear to be weak in this world, the gospel is an announcement that Jesus is king. And there's much more underneath that, but that's my aim is to unpack that for us today. For those who like to take notes, the point, the main point, if you're trying to write that down and maybe not very fast with your hand or maybe it's just a long main point, uh, you can find that on the inside of your bullets on that right hand flap. There's the main point that's that's available to you. And the points that we'll be making along the way, which don't worry about writing them down now, they'll be, uh, Lord willing, up on the screen behind me as we go. Uh, first, we'll do point number one, looking at verses eight to ten, uh, signs of the kingdom of Christ. Point number two, we'll be looking at verses eleven to thirteen, the false positive response that we see here in Lystra. Uh, point number three will be a call for repentance, really looking at how Paul preaches the gospel to these uh, pagans there in Lystra, verses fourteen to eighteen. And then fourth and finally, uh, the radical reversal, the last two verses of our passage here this morning. Without any further introduction, let's get straight to it and see point number one, looking especially at these first three verses of the passage, verses eight to ten, to see signs of the kingdom, signs of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, You might be interested to know, or maybe this is just superfluous extra for you, but two two Thursdays ago, I had every intention of preaching through the first 20 verses of Acts 14 as one section. It seemed to me that the events unfolding in Lystra, the town that we're looking at this morning, were simply the conclusion of what had been planned in Iconium. They planned to kill Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. They wanted to stone them to death. We learned that in in the early part of Acts 14. Uh, Paul and Barnabas learned the, the plan to stone them to death, so they fled. And now in Lystra, the unbelievers from Antioch and Iconium, they finally, in verse 19 of our passage this morning, indeed stone Paul and drag him out of the city. So it seemed to me this was sort of, yeah, this is what happened when they were scheming there in the previous town. But there's more going on in Lystra than the mere conclusion of unbelieving hostility. And there was more for us to consider in Iconium last week than the mere setup of Paul's almost murder. Of course, our passage today does climax with the arrival and the violence of those unbelievers who traveled a good distance to catch up with Paul and Barnabas. But there is a lot for us to understand and think about before we get there. Let's begin by looking at these first three verses. And the healing of this unnamed cripple or lame man, depending on your translation. Now, if your Bible is a, is a cross-reference Bible, where it has you know, numbers and letters beside words and, and verses to tell you about where you can find that stuff elsewhere, you might have a letter or a number beside the word cripple or lame in verse 8. And that's the reason for that is because the exact same Greek word is being translated there as was being translated in Acts chapter three with a very similar episode. It was chapter three of the book of Acts and Peter was the apostle in focus. And Luke had just finished writing about how the brand new church there in Jerusalem was growing in number and in favor. This is the end of Acts chapter two. Sometime after Pentecost, Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray and a lame man or crippled man from birth was being carried nearby. This is Acts chapter three, verses one and two. In fact, as the episode in Acts chapter three continues, you might just kind of hold your finger in 14 and look with me there back back and forth to Acts chapter three. It reveals a striking, some striking parallels with our passage this morning. I'll just rattle off some of the obvious ones, both cripples in Acts chapter three and Acts chapter 14 were unnamed men. Uh, They are crippled or lame men designated, but there's no name that's given to either one of them. 
They both were crippled or lame from the womb of his mother is the literal uh, Greek phrase underneath there. It's exactly the same in both passages. From birth or from the womb of his mother. In fact, Luke even uh, emphasizes this. He could not walk. He, he couldn't get up. His, his feet were lame. It, it, it repeated there about how uh, lame and crippled this man was. In, in Acts chapter 3 and 14, both Peter and Paul looked intently at, again, the same Greek word is underneath there, their respective crippled men. Uh, both apostles are intently looking at uh, this man before them. Both lame men, immediately after being commanded by each of the apostles, first Peter and then Paul, uh, they both, they, both these lame men, they leap up or spring up and begin to walk uh, immediately. And also, uh, probably one of the most striking similarities is that both of these healings drew a crowd and immediately provoked or required an explanation. But that's exactly where these two passages diverge from one another. Acts chapter 3 was a situation in which Peter was addressing a, a Jewish crowd there in Jerusalem, calling for repentance and faith uh, to believe in this long-awaited Messiah who were uh, from, for, to call these who were descendants of Abraham, who knew the promises of God. So he was, he was preaching to a Jewish audience who had a, a deep understanding of the Old Testament. But in Acts chapter 14, our passage this morning, Paul is addressing an entirely Gentile crowd who knows nothing of the God of Abraham. And you see now, uh, hopefully, why Acts chapter 14, 8 to 20 isn't just a conclusion of verses 1 to 7. It seems that in our passage this morning, Luke has organized his record in such a way so as to highlight the expansion of the gospel among the Gentiles in the exact same way that he highlighted the expansion of the gospel among the Jews in Jerusalem. It's like Luke wasn't just interested in telling history, but that he was interested in telling a particular story about history, about the unfolding of history, and he wanted to tell the story in in a certain kind of way so the reader would understand this is what God is doing. Now, as I've been arguing all along throughout our study of the book of Acts, the miracles that we read about in the apostolic period, this time in which the apostles, those who were commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be his spokesman on the earth, uh, the miracles that were happening during this period were not merely intended to make us ask, how come we don't see that in our own day? But instead, these were recorded miracles intending to show us that the kingdom of Christ is breaking into this world. And just like the arrival of the Messiah means healing and life, For believing Jews in Jerusalem, so too does King Jesus extend his healing for believers of all nations or all peoples. This, of course, is affirmed in Revelation 22, verse 2. And once again, the healing Jesus brings is not merely temporary. So while the miracles are temporary, whether it be the healing of a lame or crippled man or even somebody being brought back to life, these are temporary healings meant to point to something that is greater or bigger than themselves, namely the complete healing that Jesus promises for all those in him. That final resurrection for all those who love and trust him. There is coming a day when we will receive resurrected bodies that will never grow old, grow old or malfunction again. And this is the promise of the gospel. This, as Malachi 4 says, 
tells us, this is the, this is the, the illustration that Jesus is the son of righteousness who has indeed risen with healing in his wings. And Jesus will bring about full healing and restoration in the final resurrection for all those who believe or trust in him. Jesus himself said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now we may certainly pray for healing in this life, but brothers and sisters, our Christian eager expectation is not for a few more days or better days now. Instead, our Christian expectation is eternal joy in a world made new. That's what verses 8 to 10 of Acts 14 are illustrating for us. This same Christ King Savior who was at work behind and through these apostolic messengers will one day complete the work that he has begun. These missionaries who brought the good news of healing and forgiveness in Jesus' name are heralds of the eternal King who will make good on his promises. But just like we are prone to do today, those Gentiles who heard that there was a healing that happened, they were far more interested in the miracle than they were in the message that was being proclaimed. This brings us to point number two, now looking at verses 11 to 13. A false positive response. There seems to be something of a delay between the events of verses 11 to 13 and then what Paul and Barnabas did in verse 14. Now, it's possible that Paul and Barnabas did not know the Lyconian language. This would explain how the citizens of Lystra would have been able to go so far in their misunderstanding before Paul tried to correct them. But whether that's the case or something else, we're told in verse 11 that the crowds saw that saw what Paul had done. And this provoked what at first seems to be a very positive response. They lifted up their voices in praise for Paul and Barnabas. Verse 11, verse 12 says they even assumed that Paul and Barnabas were manifestations of Greek gods. Now, depending on your translation, Paul and Barnabas were either called Zeus and Hermes or Jupiter and Mercurius. Uh, the King James uh, version, maybe New King James as well, has Jupiter and Mercurius, where other newer translations have Zeus and Hermes. Now, it seems to me the reason for this variance is, is quite simple. The highest god of the pantheon was called Zeus for the Greeks and Jupiter for the Romans. And the messenger or son of the high god was called Hermes for the Greeks or Mercurius or Mercury for the Romans. Now, that's the reason for the variation. It's not clear to me whether it's because the Lyconian language, there's something of a mix up there where Luke is writing in Greek and the Lyconians were maybe speaking in a different way and saying these names, or if it's some difficulty with the English translators later on. But either way, there is uh, the meaning of, of this this. Uh, designation that uh, Paul and Barnabas are given these these names of, of Greek or, or Roman gods. The citizens of Lystra, they were total pagans and they assumed that the high gods of their pantheon, whatever they called them, were come among them in human form. They visited their town. This is the meaning of the text, of course. Verse 13 even tells us that the priest of the temple of either Zeus or Jupiter, depending on your, tra- on your translation, was located, which was located at the entrance or just outside the city, that this priest organized a worship service and sacrifices to honor Paul and Barnabas. Now, John Calvin thought that this display of complete theological error was not indicative of humility, and I'm inclined to agree with him. He thought he believes that this was a sign of ambition 
on the part of the folks there in Lystra. He said their desire to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas was motivated by their aim to elevate the status of Lystra to make their city more famous and noble because it had been visited by the gods. This wasn't humility on their part. Now, to add even more possible background, another commentator said that this, there was a legend uh, that sort of um, provides some, some scenery behind what the Lyconians might have been thinking during this time. This legend was, had it that there was a supreme god and his son that were disguised as mortals seeking lodging that had come to Lystra previously. According to the legend, the elderly couple who welcomed the gods, uh, they, uh, their house was transformed into a temple and they were made priests to these gods who came to them. But the gods quickly destroyed those who did not welcome them elsewhere in the town. Now, if that story is part of the local lore of Lystra, then the announcement of another visit of these supreme gods would have been all the more compelling. Hey, let's make sure to do what's right by them. Remember what happened last time. Whatever the background, the fact is that Paul and Barnabas got the total opposite response in Lystra than the sort of responses that they'd been getting in the last two towns. They'd been kicked out of Antioch. They'd barely escaped a secret plan to kill them in Iconium. And now they were literally being welcomed as gods in Lystra. Just imagine the sort of letter, missionary letter that comes back to the home church if something like that happens today. You wouldn't believe it. We, are, we arrived in Lystra to preach the gospel and the people love us. We can't even count the size of the crowds we've been getting. We've got more money than we know what to do with. We're building a building that looks just like the religious decor of the rest of the town around us. It's just a matter of time before everybody's gathering in our building to worship. Uh, to the glory of God, of course. But what are these crowds gathering for? Why are they gathering? And who exactly are they worshiping? And why, why aren't any of the missionaries on the ground or the churches back home asking any of these questions? Well, Paul and Barnabas were asking those kind of questions. And when they heard the answers, they were not happy. In fact, they were horrified. And they were urgent in their call for repentance. And this leads us in now to verses 14 to 18. Point number three, a call for repentance. In verse 14, we read, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. And this was a a Jewish sign indication of disgust, of, of outrage at the notion of blasphemy. And then Luke tells us that they rushed out into the crowd, apparently doing all they could to stop or at least hinder the pagan worship service that was going on right in front of them. Just a quick observation here before we get into the real meat of our passage this morning. And notice how quickly and actively these missionary preachers throw off the glory that the crowd aimed at them. Paul and Barnabas were not slow, nor were they polite in their response, as we will see. They recognized that the glory which belongs to God was being given to them, and they were scandalized by it. So much so that they flung themselves, just two guys, into a crowd with the purpose of stopping the whole procession. Brothers and sisters, may God help us to be so jealous of His glory over our own. Verses 15 to 17 are indeed the real meat of our passage today. And this will be the longest point, so stick with me as we walk through what is being said here. This is the first recorded confrontation between missionary evangelists and a purely pagan culture. 
Paul had presented the gospel to both Jews and God-fearers already on this mission trip. But here in Acts chapter 14, Paul was directly addressing the Greco-Roman culture and religion. Now, let's look carefully at what's said here, and let's consider how this might impact or influence the way we think about gospel conversations today. What I'm going to do is, looking at verses 15 and 16 and 17, is look at this in, in four different sections. The first half of verse 15, second half of verse 15, verse 16, and then 17. So let's look at that together. First, in the first half of verse 15, they said, uh, Paul essentially is the spokesman here, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. The missionaries began with the claim that they were not gods, but only men, just like the citizens of Lystra. Paul and Barnabas claimed no higher value or ability than the pagans they wanted to see converted. Instead, they understood that they were merely bringers of good news which was about the only king and savior and which had been told to them so that they might believe it and also tell it to others. They knew their role. Friends, sometimes Christians can sound like that they think better of themselves than those sinners out there. Sometimes we can talk and act like the sinners around us are the bad guys and we are the good guys. No doubt wicked people do wicked things and Christians should be crystal clear about what is right and wrong. But we aren't just trying to maintain a better society. We aren't just trying to make America great again or to stop the radicals from overtaking everything. These are political talking points, not Christian slogans. Christians are sinners who have come to learn that the God of the universe has shown His grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Christians are those who turn from their sin and trust and follow the only Savior. And Christians are are those who know that their war is not against other sinners per se, but rather is against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness, which seems to dominate the fallen world. May God help us to be happy and gracious warriors, aiming to rescue those ensnared by sin and not to attack them as our enemies. So first, Paul and Barnabas claimed a common humanity with their pagan audience. And they stated their role as mere messengers. But this did not mean that they pulled their punches. The next statement that they made was a clear call to repent. And that's the second half of verse 15. It says that the good news that Paul and Barnabas brought began with an appeal to turn from these vain things to a living God who made everything. And friends, this is something we need to stick in our minds and to keep readily accessible as a constant corrective against all the world's demands for tolerance and love. In the New Testament, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to the Jews, it's a call to embrace Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah of old. He is the one Yahweh has been promising and illustrating all along, and now he is here. But when the gospel is preached to pagans, those who have little or no knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, it's a call to give up idolatry and to embrace the one true God. This is the way the gospel is proclaimed. 
And this is what we see in the words of verse 15. Paul and Barnabas called their audience to turn from these vain or worthless things. But what vain things? Well, the idolatrous worship they were offering to Paul and Barnabas as gods among them. Brothers and sisters, it is not unloving to call a sinner to repentance. It is not unloving or arrogant to expose the futility and the foolishness of idolatry. It is most definitely intolerant, but the fallen world has always been hypocritical about tolerance. Sinners are tolerant of all sorts of religious claims, except for the exclusive kind. The minute that somebody stands up and says, that's idolatry and this is the true God, well, that's when sinners will show their real intolerance for such exclusive claims, sometimes by public shaming and sometimes by overt violence, which is what we see in this passage this morning. Some of us have family members, friends who think that we are unloving or bigoted because we won't go along with their sin, because we won't join them in their foolish error, because we won't celebrate their idolatry. Yeah, I said idolatry. Idolatry is not just an ancient problem. It is man's fundamental error. The Bible says that all sin rises or springs up from an idolatrous heart. We don't naturally want to honor God or live in gratitude under his benevolent rule. So we claim a wisdom and a glory that is our own apart from him. We imagine all manner of gods and even sometimes claim that we are our own gods. We get to say how this whole thing works. We get to be autonomous. And this leads us into all sorts of futility or vanity or worthless pursuits. Now just read the end of Romans chapter 1, the beginning of Romans chapter 2. This is where I'm getting this content from. The worthless pursuits we chase are envy, murder, strife, dishonesty, deviant sexual desire and behavior, cruelty, gossip, slander, disrespect toward good authority, arrogance, inventing new kinds of evil, and ruthlessness in our dealings with others. And leaving sinners like us in this kind of vain idolatry is an act of judgment, not love. To leave that kind of vain pursuit unchecked, uncorrected, is judgment. It isn't love. And this leads us into the third piece of the gospel that Paul pronounced there in Lystra. Look at verse 16. Paul said, in past generations, he, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, this is not an expression of acceptance, as though God allowed the nations or the peoples to sin without penalty. No, this is an expression of judgment, that God allowed the nations or the peoples to sin without restraint. And in this way, storing up all the more of God's wrath to be delivered on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It was out of God's grace and his mercy that he revealed his law to the people of Israel. But God did not reveal his law or his promises to any other people on the planet. Everyone else he left to walk in their own ways of ignorance and sin and idolatry. And this was not loving. This was God's judgment. But this, of course, idolatry, sin, and ignorance is the natural bent of fallen humans since Genesis 3. Adam knew about the truth of God and his descendants quickly turned the whole world into a mass of wicked humanity such that Genesis 6 tells us the intention and thoughts of their hearts was evil, was only evil continually. 
And after the destruction of all the humans who lived then, with the exception of Noah and his immediate family, when they started again, it was Noah's descendants who built the idolatrous Tower of Babel. Friends, the entire world around you is evidence that humanity is not inclined toward the right worship of God. But unless God graciously restrains evil, man will run headlong into idolatry and toward his own destruction everywhere and every time. In our passage this morning, Paul and Barnabas embody the exemplary Christian posture and they vocalize the evangelistic call. They said to the pagans in Lystra that it was God's judgment upon them to leave their ancestors in ignorance and idolatry. But now, today, God was showing them grace by sending them messengers of the gospel. This was the same sort of posture and call which Christians are to demonstrate today. May God help us to follow in this good example. But there's one more section of this gospel message from Paul and Barnabas, and we need to hear about and consider this one too. The fourth and last piece of this brief presentation is a caveat or a qualification of the statement we just read in verse 16. As Paul often does in his writing, he anticipates an objection or a misunderstanding on the part of his reader, and he preemptively corrects it. He heads it off. So remember that verse 16 says that God previously allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. That's what verse 16 says. But then verse 17 says, yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness. And what witness did God give all the nations who did not have his word? Well, Paul said that he, God, did good. That is, that God showed his goodness or did good works toward humanity. By, verse 17, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts, uh, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Now, all this is to say what the Bible clearly says elsewhere. And that is that all people everywhere live in God's world and are beneficiaries of God's benevolence, his kindness, whether they acknowledge it or not. In fact, this is precisely why all people everywhere are blameworthy when they embrace idolatry. And when they act in sinful ways, no one can say they didn't know. There is no such thing as an innocent native anywhere. On the day of judgment, the Bible teaches us that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will understand and feel their guilt before God. No one will accuse God on that day of being coy or causing himself to be hidden so that no one can know what God really wants from us. God has displayed his attributes in creation itself. And this is what Christians have historically called natural revelation, by which we do natural theology. Without ever having a Bible, just by observing the world around us and using the minds God gave us, we can know that there is a God, that he is supremely powerful and worthy of all praise and gratitude, and that he is morally righteous. All of this we can know without ever having to hear from the Bible. But notice that natural revelation only condemns us. God's goodness toward us in creation, from rain from the sky, food in our bellies, this does not teach us how to deal with our sin or how to know Christ as Savior. To know these things 
God must give us what historically Christians have called special revelation. God must speak. He must tell us plainly what he has done in Jesus Christ to save idolatrous sinners like us. And that's why Paul and Barnabas came to Lystra. They came that day for the sake of lost souls to tell them God's special revelation that he has given a savior for guilty sinners. And this is what every Christian must do every day for the sake of lost souls around them. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be obnoxious Bible thumpers, but we must not pretend that our loved ones are all right before God just because they're decent people. There are no genuinely good people in this world. We are all sinners. But some of us have heard the gospel and are actively turning away from our idolatry. While others have either not heard the gospel or they have misunderstood or disbelieved the gospel and they remain condemned sinners still. Luke tells us in verse 18 of our passage this morning that even with this kind of presentation, uh, that Paul and Barnabas were scarcely able to restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Even though these supposed gods from the heavens were telling them that what they're doing is idolatrous and worthy of condemnation before the holy and righteous God, this barely was able to restrain the idolatry of the crowd. And we will see just how much the worshiping crowd of Lystra was actually not interested at all in the gospel Paul and Barnabas preached. This brings us to point number four, a radical reversal. The last two verses of our passage this morning, they tie this whole thing back into the narrative of Acts. And these verses also serve as a sort of climax and conclusion of the episode we've been studying this morning. So in verse 19, Luke says that some of those unbelieving Jews from Antioch and Iconium finally did catch up with Paul and Barnabas. Now, maybe they'd heard that Paul and Barnabas were continuing their missionary efforts in other towns, or maybe they were just still so angry about what Paul and Barnabas had preached in Antioch and Iconium. But whatever motivated them to take their opposition on the road, they made their way to Lystra. One commentator said that the unbelieving Jews from Antioch traveled more than 100 miles. And that's a long distance in today's traveling, incredibly long in ancient uh, history. It seems that both Jewish and Gentile rage was directed especially at Paul, since he was the spokesman, claiming that Jesus was the Messiah and that all pagan worship was idolatry. They seem to hate him the most. And it is true that these unbelieving Jews were able to persuade the crowds in Lystra And they did stone Paul to death, or at least so they thought. Friends, this is a testament to the evil that sometimes is hidden away in the hearts of unregenerate and non-Christian people in the world. We've been studying through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights for a while now, and I'm being increasingly impacted by the repeated calls for perseverance and the repeated warnings to expect suffering. Western culture has been so influenced by historic Christian values and ethics that we've been allowed to assume that Christians can live and work and play in this world without experiencing much hostility at all. And yet, 
Many Christian brothers and sisters have lived and died with their eyes wide open to the horrors of overt persecution. This passage shows us a violence toward the gospel and toward those who preach it, which is not usual, which is not unusual, I should say, on the pages of Scripture. But it has been quite unusual for Christians in America. Some of you may feel a sense of loss or hopelessness or even anger when you see the culture around you taking an increasingly antagonistic stance toward Christian doctrine, toward Christian ethics. I know I feel this way sometimes. But I think we are simply starting to get a taste, and it really is just a taste at this moment, of what it's been like for many Christians before us and those who've been living under other cultural and political contexts for a long time now. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he warned and encouraged his disciples by telling them that he had chosen them as his beloved disciples and that the world would hate them precisely because he had done that. Jesus said in John chapter 15, Remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will also persecute you. If you were of the world, he said to his disciples, the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, the world hates you. And this was Jesus' encouragement to them. In the midst of this warning, the world around you, the people who do not follow, who do not love, who do not turn toward and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, they will hate you precisely because you do. This was his encouragement to them. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Think about that for a second, brothers and sisters. Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. But he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. The promise is not that we will be able to avoid pain, sorrow, affliction, persecution, tribulation, but rather that Christ has already endured it to the full and he has overcome and he is with us. This is the promise of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus is the king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. And then Jesus has promised, and I'll be with you even to the end. Brothers and sisters, the Bible never asks us to pretend that pain isn't painful or that suffering is fun. The Bible never asks us to run toward tribulation or to run away from peace and freedom. But the Bible does tell us that Christians are foreigners in every nation, including this one. We are citizens of another kingdom. The Bible also teaches us that citizens of this world have not signed any peace treaty with Christ. And they will sometimes break out in rage at those who bear his name. And yet our comfort, our hope, the truth which brings us joy in the midst of uncertainty and even joy in the midst of persecution is the knowledge that Jesus Christ is king now. He is king now. And he rules over all of this. 
even if we can't understand how that is, or if we can't even see it in front of us, the Bible declares the reality that Jesus is king now and that he is bringing the entire cosmos into line with his right rule. Until he comes, it is for Christians to cling to Christ, to be his obedient subjects, and to tell others where they can find true peace with God before it's too late. Verse 20 concludes our passage this morning, uh, this episode of the whole unfolding of these events by telling us that the disciples or the fellow Christians, uh, these may have been some converts there in Lystra. Uh, Certainly Paul and Barnabas had some folks traveling along with them, so I'm not sure exactly which disciples are being talked about there, but some Christians gathered about him, that is Paul, and he, Paul, rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Sort of an anticlimactic finish, I think. Derby was just the next town on the way. It does seem to me that Luke is telling us that Paul did not actually die. So this was not Paul being resurrected from the dead. I I get that from what Luke says in verse 19. He clearly says there that the unbelievers supposed or thought that Paul was dead. The strong implication is, is that Paul wasn't actually dead. They just merely supposed him so. But Luke also does seem to me to be telling us that there was a miracle that happened here. Nobody who is supposed dead just gets up and walks along on his way. This is not only physically unlikely, it's psychologically near impossible. But God seems to have miraculously granted both healing and confidence for Paul to carry on. And friends, this morning we've looked at a passage that tells us about the kingship of Christ. He is the sovereign with healing and resurrection power. This passage also tells us about the fickle and often hostile heart of unbelieving man. Sinners can hail you one moment as a God and turn to murder you in the next. This passage also tells us about the fundamental starting point of the gospel. That it's a message of hope that directly confronts us in our ignorance and in our rebellion. In our not knowing and in our knowing but not wanting to do the right thing. And this passage tells us about the kind of miraculous perseverance Christians can experience when God grants it so. May God help us to be the sorts of Christians today that live in light of these realities. May we trust And obey Christ. May we never let our ears be enticed by the praises of this world. May we abandon our own idolatry and call other sinners, especially those we love, to do the same. And may God grant us all perseverance in Christ that we might both believe and proclaim the gospel faithfully until King Jesus returns. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.